Welcome to the Pete on Software podcast, where we program with passion. This is the podcast that discusses technology, the business side of software, and the tech people that drive our industry. And now, here's your host, Pete Shearer. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Pete on Software podcast. Back when I returned from my hiatus and I got the feedback from you guys about the types of shows to do, I hinted that I had an interview that I wanted to do. Well, today I'm going to present that interview to you. My interview today is with Eric Dietrich, who can be found all over the internet under the Dead Tech, spelled D-A-E-D Tech handle. Eric is a software developer, consultant, author, and has been a technology executive, all of it. He definitely knows what he's talking about, so when it comes to his writing, I listen. That's what brought me to want to talk to him about today's topic. So without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Eric. Thanks for making the time for me. Hi, it's uh, good to be here, and I appreciate you having me. Oh, no problem. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit how you got into software development? Like, what made you choose this career path? Well, it was basically just that I majored in computer science. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do um, going into college. And so I applied to a number of different schools, and because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do at each college, I kind of applied to a different major. Usually, I tried to apply to uh, the best major at each college, Mm -hmm. uh, hardest to get in anyway, reasoning that I could always switch later um, more easily if if I changed my mind. So kind of procrastinating that decision-making. And I wound up choosing a school, and the major kind of came along with that, which was computer science. And so I found myself majoring in computer science. Now, I mean, that wasn't a complete shot in the dark. I had um, applied to electrical engineering in another college. So I, I have the sense that I like technology. But yeah. um, so in, in a way, I kind of, um, you know, it was almost happenstance, I suppose. Uh, so once I emerged with the computer science degree, I was fairly committed to going and uh, working in the industry. <laughs> nice. So how do you stay current? So you came out of college, obviously, they probably taught you the basics and, and things like that and some theory, but how did you get, and then you got your first job and where you're at now, obviously. So how do you stay current? Do you read, you read things, do you watch videos, you know, et cetera. What do you do? That's varied a bit over the years. Um, in my first job, we were working with a good bit of like legacy software and technology. And so for a while I kind of didn't, I, I didn't necessarily have my fingers on the pulse of the latest and greatest, but luckily that was early in my career. So I was learning a lot about just the business of software development and um, kind of getting better at what I did. And then I wound up um, moving on and, and taking jobs where I was working with more recent technologies and uh, got into the uh, development community at that time. Um, something that was going on also early in my career was I started going to graduate school at night to get a master's. So that helped. Um, and that really kind of set, I guess, study patterns for me. So I got used to this notion that I would carve out a pretty good amount of time after my nine to five job to be improving my skills. Um, It helped me get a lot of research skills, the ability to read and process and write about white papers and such. So that was formative. Um, Since then, you know, media like Pluralsight have emerged. Um, I I do developer training videos for Pluralsight, but before I did that, I was a consumer of it and sort of an avid one. I would read a lot of blogs. Uh, so I guess I can summarize that by saying um, on the whole, and especially these days, I really try to keep my finger on the pulse, just an abstract level of what technologies are out there, who the people are that are working with them and what problems they're solving. Uh, rather than try to know everything, it, it's almost like indexing. You know, I know what's happening. If I need to know more about a topic, I have a good sense of where I can go to learn it. Okay, awesome. 
that sounds really interesting. I never really considered the, especially with you taking a master's and, you know, with the graduate school stuff at night, the study habit portion of that is something. I have terrible study habits. So, <laughs> yeah, that's, that is interesting. So, obviously, one, one of the big reasons I have you on the show is because I came across a blog post you wrote called How Developers Stop Learning, Rise of the Expert Beginner. So I have to tell you that just reading that kind of stopped me in my tracks. I read it, uh, then I got the book, and I read that too. I was worried that basically I was an expert beginner. I was like, is this, is this me? It <laughs> caused a lot of self-examination. Um, so, uh, you know, I've been, like, have, have I just been like wreaking havoc all over development shops all nationwide? <laughs> Uh, so can you tell the listeners a little bit like what an expert beginner is and how you came up with the idea for it? I would describe the expert beginner persona as, in essence, somebody who has sort of entrenched themselves into an organization and whose value becomes very married to that organization. And um, another defining characteristic is sort of a lack of any outside oversight or input. To put it in a little bit more concrete terms, I guess I can give an example and say, just imagine a shop that you've been in where there's a person that's been there for, say, 20 years, and they've developed uh, over the course of time weird frameworks, weird habits, um, things that you don't really see elsewhere in the industry. But in that company, that person has so much seniority and so much influence that the non-technical people and the people in management think of that person as the expert. And um, this has an effect where people who are maybe not long tenured in general, people who move around from job to job, or people who are new and just kind of do a lot of research, there's this dissonance that's created between what that so-called or you know organizationally defined expert says and what the rest of the world says. Um, so that's kind of an example of, of one in the wild. It is um, it, it requires this. Uh, this lack of, I guess, unity between the industry and the organization. Um, and the way I came to catalog this and think of it as just encountering people like this from time to time, um, I won't go into, you know, any specific like names or anything like that to sort of protect those involved, but um, seeing in multiple organizations that there were people who had developed these weird frameworks or who would, you know, have these ideas about coding standards that didn't make a lot of sense. And they were extremely defensive and kind of over the top about uh, preserving their turf, so to speak. And people, and usually there were many people that would object to this, um, that who, you know, whose only difference in qualification might be just less time with the company. People who might raise concerns like that had trouble doing so because these people um, that were in this role had the backing of management. Um, so that's a lot of uh, words I've said there. I want to check in with you and make sure I'm still kind of answering the question that you asked. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things you, uh, you talked about in the, on the blog and in the book is the story, you know, when you, you kind of used an illustration about the bowling mm -hmm. as, as a kind of an example for that. And that was, I thought that was, uh, this is really telling. And I think it helped me understand it a lot. Uh, could you kind of just, uh, Maybe quickly summarize that for the listeners so they oh, can yeah. have that too. Sure, absolutely. Um, this is a story from a, a job I had when I was younger. We had this after work bowling league. And um, I had over the years, uh, like when it comes to sports or games, if you will, like darts and bowling and such, like I tend to take to those pretty well, but not in any serious way. It's just that I tend to be good at that kind of right, about, right out of the gate. And that happened with bowling. 
except that when it came to bowling, I had this style where instead of bowling, like traditionally, I'd kind of take a pretty light ball and sort of, um, I don't know how to describe this very well without showing and making lots of motions here at my desk, but I would, in essence, not really put my fingers in the ball and I would make this corkscrew motion with my arm and sort of hurl the ball down the lane. And it would mimic pretty well the curvature of the ball that you see from like really good bowlers. And it sort of worked. I mean, I, um, in the course of this league, quickly started to average like 150 or 160 or so. And um, in, in the beginning, I enjoyed that ri- rapid rise in skill and seeing the results and getting better. Um, but what happened was that I hit a point where I just kind of leveled off and I wasn't getting any better. And, and my boss at the time, who was a very good bowler, I, I went and asked him, you know, what do you think? Like, do you think I'll get my average up or what can I do? And what he said to me was basically, you are not going to improve if you keep doing it that way. You've locally maximized. If, if you want to actually improve your game, you have to kind of learn to do it properly. Um, and the way I related this uh, in the book and blog post to the um, expert beginner phenomenon is I said, like, imagine, if you will, that same story, um, except there had been nobody around to tell me I had topped out. And in fact, imagine a bowling alley or imagine a, a universe where you had people in the alley or people around me who weren't particularly good bowlers either. And they might not realize that averaging 160 isn't like the best that you could do. Um, Mm -hmm. For those who are not bowlers, 300 is the best that you could do. So it's not even especially close. But um, if if you just marched a bunch of people in there that didn't know how to bowl at all, I would have looked like I was really good. And so that's kind of the metaphor for these software shops where if you don't have this, uh, I guess, comparison and check-in with the outside world, you have these people who are not technical that would look at this metaphorical bowler of 160 and think, yeah, that's the best that we can do. And um, sorry, I just banged my ring on the desk. <laughs> that's the best that we can do. And uh, yeah, you know, we'll, um, we'll let this person run the bowling alley. I mean, the analogy gets a little labored at this point. Yeah. But, um, so new people come in and you start entrusting their training to this 160 bowler who doesn't realize that he is locally maximized. And so then there's this phenomenon where maybe the newer bowlers, they, they learn from this person for a while and, and respect this person, but then they start to see like, hey, if I watch bowling on TV or if I go out and, you know, solicit training videos from the best bowlers, they don't do it this way. And when you get into software shops, like if, if I can make the jump back, that's where you've got this person with the weird framework that the organization trusts. And this person's frankly not interested in looking up what you know, people in the industry are doing, they're pretty content in this situation where they are getting accolades and life has been good for the last 10 years with their frameworks and their coding standards. And they frankly don't want to hear about what people in the broader world are doing. So when these junior developers or mid-level developers or just people who haven't been with the company for as long come in and say, hey, you know, there's this thing, unit testing that people are doing, you get this almost hostile reaction from these types of people where They'll say weird things and make up weird justifications and just kind of shoot you down. Um, so that's kind of the bowling analogy and, and I guess how I would relate it back to the concept. Yeah, that, I, mean, I think that's perfect. That's the what's funny is I probably bowl a similar way, not the motion, but, <laughs> uh, you know, where I have something that works, but it's not the, you know, take the steps at these, you know, this point, bring your arm back as you go hook like this, do that. But I don't do any of that. I just kind of aim, try to bowl in a straight line and hit the pin I'm aiming for. And then, you know, mm-hmm. like you said, like I've 
I'd probably top out at like 130, 140, but, and I don't bowl with any regularity, but that's, that's it, right? I'll never, but I'll never bowl 300 game like that. And so that's, mm-hmm. I mean, so I, I was, I took to that immediately, but on top of that, like that is exactly how I've seen so many software shops where you have someone that maybe was self-taught, maybe they came from somewhere else, like maybe they had been doing, a perfect example actually is uh, when I was with a large banking corporation, there was a guy who had made this access database that was, it basically ran this one, in one entire department and he had taught himself and his coding, he had all this code <laughs> like tucked inside these objects and in this button events and like all these other things. And, and then when he ran out of room to put them there, or, like it didn't make sense there, he had them somewhere else. And so he had these chains of events firing so that the code would do what he wanted when he wanted. It was the most ridiculous thing in the world. No one would ever code <laughs> like that. But everyone was just like, you know, this guy, I don't want to say his name, uh, but uh, this person, like everyone's like, this guy's the best. He knows what he's doing. We wouldn't work without this guy. So, was, I mean, I immediately made the, the correlation <laughs> between that. I mean, I think it's perfect. Um, but so at the risk, you know, this is, I think, kind of a maybe a softball question, but let's talk a little bit about, so why are expert beginners such a bad thing? So if you look at the point, you know, there's certainly a, a, a subset of people out there who say, well, results matter, right? So if this expert beginner in, in company A, maybe a small company, maybe a mid-sized company, is getting results, you know, why is this bad? Why should we change what we're doing? Like you said in your bowling analogy, why are we going to break down your motion and you're going to bowl 60s for a while until you can go back up? So that probably would happen maybe in these shops. So, I mean, is that what's necessary? You know, that's, is it really a bad thing? Like, just talk about that a little bit about what harm that does, really. Well, it's going to vary, I think, from shop to shop. And I'll throw out there, um, you know, kind of to start with, that it is entirely possible that you have a shop that is populated by a person like this and a couple long tenured lieutenants, and they're just cranking along year after year doing their thing. And uh, perhaps nobody really is adversely impacted by this. Um, So it is not necessarily going to cause problems. But in my experience, that hypothetical that I just offered, I've never really even seen that. Like, usually there is some form of damage that's happening. One of the first uh, serious kinds of problems that a person like this tends to cause is in the development team itself. Yeah. You tend to see a higher rate of turnover and more attrition. So if you're a manager and you have this long tenured person that you think of as this wonderful expert, and yet everybody that you bring in has an average uh, time with the company of six months, uh, that's a serious problem because hiring is expensive. Um, onboarding, uh, replacing people is expensive. So there is a component where it creates turnover and and it tends to create turnover by um, having a negative impact on morale. So um, if you have people that are coming in um, from the outside world or even people that have been there for a long time, I'm not going to ipso facto equate seniority with, you know, bad, but um, you just have people that are excited about what's going on in the industry. People that are excited about you know, new frameworks, new testing approaches, new whatever. And um, they come back and they bring these ideas to the company and they're constantly shot down. You're going to have this morale problem and you're going to also have a culture of stagnation. So what they start to learn is if I want to last here, I've just got to kind of shut up about all this new stuff and just go along to get along. So you get a lot of people that are leaving and then the people that are staying are either sort of indifferent and apathetic or else they're kind of broken. Um, so you tend not to really have a culture of innovation and another, um, component of where this tends to create morale problems is that a lot of times 
the person who is presiding over this over the years, if there is turnover and if there is new blood coming in or if there's growth, you tend to see this person get fairly cranky because their ideas are constantly being challenged. And usually, I mean, at least depending on the personality type involved, in some corner of their brain, they have a subconscious understanding that they're probably not doing things all that well. Like they probably sense that they're not bowling perfect games. And oftentimes you will see them kind of try to shut that out and assume I am the person that knows everything. You know, I have been put in charge by this company and stop questioning me. So there's this hostility that builds up too. Um, So off the top, those are a number of, I guess, vectors of (laughs) damage that you might see from uh, this kind of archetype inhabiting your organization. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. So you've got the one guy, you've got the hero, you've got the one getting all the accolades, but then, like you said, turnover, people come in, especially ones who are aware of what the outside world looks like. They don't want to do everything with WS star services and, you know, or they don't, <laughs> they don't want to write all their code in you know, monolithic ways, whatever, you know, and then, you know, they go and they find stuff elsewhere. So you get turnover and you just figure that's because maybe the industry as a whole sucks and programmer sucks. And can't be us, right? You know, so that's, that's definitely one. Uh, you touched on this a little bit about, you know, maybe what that guy might know in his, his subconscious. So kind of leads into my next question, which was, how can you find out if you are an expert beginner? And can someone maybe who is truly ever know that they are? That's one of the most frequent questions. I mean, that that blog post um, or the series of blog posts in the book and everything like tends to get a run on Hacker News every now and then I get this, you know, people that reach out to me and and that is by far the most common thing I hear. And the answer I tend to give, it sounds a little flippant, but it's it's almost like if, if you're introspecting enough to wonder if you are, you probably aren't. Now, uh, the distinction that I do tend to draw is that you may well be in a position of seniority and not making optimal decisions, but I don't think that has the all of the requisite characteristics. Even if you are in a shop and you're in a position of leadership and you're, you know, what you know is 10-year-old technology and you're not out looking to improve, That doesn't mean that you aren't open to it. So there has to be a component there where not only are you um, are you kind of stuck in old ways, and not only are you in a position to remain stuck in old ways by your decree, but you have to kind of actively be avoiding um, evaluating what you're doing, actively avoiding that introspection. So whatever people may be that are wondering whether this applies to them, they're probably not expert beginners. Yeah. You know, if you have to ask if you can afford it, you probably can't, you know, and if maybe if you're asking if you're an expert <laughs> beginner, you maybe you're not. Maybe that makes this next question moot, but, you know, is there a path out of expert beginnerdom? Maybe you realize that you are, you have a lot of these tendencies, you know, is there a way to fix that about yourself? Uh, I don't think it renders the question moot. I mean, the, what I said is um, sort of a guiding heuristic. Like if, if you're at your desk reading blog posts, first of all, that's a good sign that you're not the sort of person that shuts out new information to keep the status quo. And if you're, um, if you're introspecting and, and wanting to improve yourself, you're also probably not. But let's say that you just, you know, have an epiphany one day and, and you're confronted with this and you realize that it does in fact apply to you. I would say that the, the first thing is to let go of your unwillingness to consider that the way you've been doing things all these years might not be the best or, or, or let go of the idea that it couldn't be improved. And that's probably the, the step that alone would take you out of being this archetype. But even once you do that, it's not as though 
you're suddenly nailing it. You're just um, open to hearing that, that things could be improved. So the next thing I would say, and, and this might be a critical, at least based on my travels as a consultant working with organizations, I see this a lot. Um, the next thing you might want to do is realize that being in a leadership position or a senior position doesn't mean that you always have to be right about everything because nobody will. So the next step there is to start bringing in people, even people less tenured than yourself, and realizing that, um, that learning from them doesn't somehow diminish you. So bring in these people with their outside knowledge and say, hey, I'd, I'd like to hear more about what you're talking about. And maybe ultimately you're in the position where it is you that makes the decision, but you're going to have to let go of some of that control. You cannot run or micromanage the entire organization to any effectiveness. You might just have to turn them loose on the code base and say, sure, go set up continuous integration. You have X amount of latitude. And if it fails, it fails. If not, great, we're better for it. So I think that kind of letting go, there's a, there's a tendency to want to control everything to um, avoid cognitive dissonance. And so let go of that, you know, let other people have the reins and, and realize that you don't need to, to know all of the things in order to uh, be effective in a role, even a leadership role. Do you think that the expert beginner idea is limited uh, to programming field only, you know, or like, like your bowling example, do you think you could branch it out not only athletics, but like other disciplines like doctors and lawyers? So we maybe have some expert beginner doctors that are treating us, things like that. I actually, in principle, I don't see any reason that it couldn't happen with doctors and lawyers, but I think it's going to be far less common because of the requirement in those professions from their professional associations to continue to recertify and, and keep up with new things. Um, to relate it back to programming, it, anyway, to the best of my understanding with doctors and lawyers, it would almost be like if every two or three years you had to um, you know, re-up with the programming board to let them know that you understood the latest in functional programming and that you were competent in some JavaScript frameworks and all that. So I think, um, you know, if our profession were structured like theirs, you wouldn't see as much of that. I do think it is broadly applicable, though. I think you can certainly see it in other engineering disciplines. Um, I, I could even imagine it happening with maybe like copy editors that got particularly enamored with one version of the style guide from 20 years ago and refused to move on. So I, I certainly think it is cross-applicable. Um, I think you will see less of it in professions or, or maybe none of it in professions where Somehow or another, people are sort of forced to get feedback from the whole and they can't go into these um, isolated situations and, and kind of drift off like a Apocalypse Now or something. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, what about the kind of a sl slight tangent? The expert beginner Twitter account, is that, do you run that or is that, is that a secret or is that, <laughs> uh, you know, do you know if it's not you? No, it is me. Um, th that's something I started having fun with. I had cataloged, um, at least mentally, some of the things that, that I had heard from people that were pretty dubious um, in situations where I wasn't necessarily in a position to contradict them. So I kind of held on to those and, you know, built a queue of them and um, tweet them out from that account. It's, it's not any secret that I run it per se. I think probably some people know that, but I, I don't really advertise it either. I kind of like it to be this, you know, self-sustained sort of sat uh, satirical account that, um, uh, you know, people can enjoy and, and some people seem to. Yeah, that's the thing is I had seen it out there for months, actually. I didn't know about the blog post at the time. I just thought it was another one of those kind of parody Twitter accounts like uh, the Programming <laughs> Hulk or, or whatever. And, you know, I thought it was hilarious on its own. Um, but I certainly appreciate it more with the context. 
It's, um, I, I will say that I created the blog posts in the, in the book before I ever did that. So it was kind of after that became popular. I, I, on a lark, almost thought it would be fun to sort of, uh, you know, engage in this satire. Awesome. Uh, anything else you'd like to, obviously we touched on, uh, you know, your blog, there are books. So you have the, the um, Expert Beginner book. Uh, you have another book as well on unit testing, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's that one called? Oh, gosh. Um, it's Intro to Unit Testing, Not as Hard as You'd Think. I, I don't know if that's the exact right title. All right, I I'll, should probably be better at knowing these sort of things. That's but, right. I'll have all uh, of them linked in the show notes. In a way, the, uh, the, I find like the subtit- uh, subtitle to be the most important part. Like, it's not as hard as you think. I had started that as a series of, oh, man, I guess it started as some talks I was giving within um, a couple of organizations to introduce people to the concept formalized it into some blog posts and then turned it into a book. Um, and, and the key thing there with, with that book, the reason I, um, I find the subtitle so important is I kind of emphasize, like, if you want to do automated unit testing, there are so many ways you can fail, you know, by trying to test code that's hard to test, by trying to kind of learn test-driven development and unit testing at the same time. So if you peel some of that back and just learn about writing automated tests, it turns out not to be as hard as you might think. Uh, is there? I know they're both available on Amazon. Is that basically the preferred way to get a hold of them for you? Yeah, um, I, I think that's probably sort of the easiest. Uh, there are ebook versions of them that are available in the Apple Store and um, for Kindle and such. Uh, but probably Amazon is the easiest to find. All right, and then you you have Pluralsight. You've got uh, some courses up there about best practices, uh, home automation, independent, and crunch. Uh, I believe. Yep, I have those four courses. Um, that you can go check out on Pluralsight if you're so inclined. I don't have any in the works. I do actually, now that I think about it, I'm writing a book on LeanPub um, called Developer Hegemony. Um, so that is my current um, main uh, product that I'm working on. All right. Is that something that uh, people can, I think with LeanPub, can't you get some, you know, at least subscribe to it or something in advance so that people can basically get updates on it? Is there any way people can kind of know, keep track of what you're, how you're doing? Oh, absolutely. Um, I probably should have explained that up front. I did a poor job of that, but LeanPub is a self-publication platform where you can buy the book at any part or at any point um, during it being written. The idea there is you kind of write a chapter and and people can give you feedback if they've purchased the book. Um, You can think of it almost as like pre-ordering and your pre-order gets you the ability to watch the author write it. So it's done pretty well. There are a lot of people that have done that. and usually I send out a note each time I finish a chapter. So people can check that out and see the book being written and changed and edited. Um, my wife is an editor and she's going through behind me and, um, and copy editing. So nice. you can see all of that. Yep, I'll include that as well then. So anything else, anywhere else people can find you on? Obviously your, your blog, which I'll link to, and these other properties we've discussed. Uh, anything else like your, you know, your consulting business? If anyone wants to be interested in hiring you, you know, how would they do that? You can, um, for something like that, by all means, feel free to check out my site and reach out to me, um, eric at deadtech.com. You can get me on Twitter at deadtech. Most of my consulting business, there's an info address on my site that people send me um, inquiries through and then you know people that have my contact information. So there's not a super formal way to do that, but um, you know, at any of my contact information, I'm generally available. All right, sounds awesome. To think of anything else in particular that is um, relevant. I guess, you know, welcome to reach out to me on various forms of social media as well. 
Well, thanks again for making the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. And I know the listeners are going to. So uh, thanks a lot. Sure, by all means. And thanks for having me. I've uh, appreciated and enjoyed the conversation. All right. Thank you. Again, I really want to thank Eric for coming on the podcast. He's very busy and I'm happy that he took some time in his schedule to indulge my questions and my curiosity. My pick of this week this week is kind of a vanity pick. I mentioned offhandedly last episode that I have two blogs. The reality is that I just began The Second a short time ago. I hesitated mentioning it because I wanted to make sure that I was going to keep at it before I told people about it. That blog is swiftninja.io. The name? I deal with that immediately on the about page of the site. I get it. Some people think that it's stupid to call programmers ninjas, pirates, or rock stars, but you know what? I like ninjas. I've always liked ninjas. I used to watch bad 80s ninja movies when I was a kid and then run around the neighborhood with a black t-shirt tied on like a mask. So when it came time to give the site a name, ninjas are always first up because I got to be true to myself. But I created the site to help people learn Swift from the ground up. I'm starting from the basics and working my way to advanced topics. I'll be posting short form blogs, long form blogs, and videos. I'm going to try to present each topic in the best way I can every Tuesday and every Thursday. I'm 10 lessons in. All of the code for the lessons is on GitHub, completely free for people to take and use however they'd like. If you have any interest in Swift language at all or just seeing what it's about, I hope you'll check out swiftninja.io and let me know what you think. If you have other feedback about this episode, interview, or the show in general, you can reach me at Pete on Software on Twitter or at my blog, PeteOnSoftware.com, where you can find the show notes for this show. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.